Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello? Hello? <clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Hi everyone. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe for free on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Hello mga kabayan. Welcome to the greener side, your guide to all things immigration. And today we travel to the OG, the original land of opportunity, the United States of America. And here with us today is Christopher Cruz, an assistant professor of economics at the Grand Valley State University. He came to the USA last 2014 under an F-1 visa, which is the USA's student visa, and he will tell us all there is to know about it. Thank you so much, Christopher, and welcome to The Greener Side. Well, thank you for having me. Hello as well from um, Michigan in the United States. Yeah, so before I begin asking you all these questions about your visa and whatnot, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am Christopher Cruz. You could call me Chris if you're going to send me an email or whatever. So I am currently an assistant professor of economics at Grand Valley State University uh, that's located here in Grand Rapids in Michigan in the United States. Prior to moving here in Grand Rapids, I lived for about five years in Chicago. So that's where I got my PhD in economics from, from the University of Illinois, that's in downtown Chicago. And then prior to the prior to moving to the US in 2014, I was actually a central bank economist in the Philippines. Uh, I used to work at the Philippine Central Bank at the Department of Economic Research. I grew up in Pangasinan. And yeah, so I'm actually a prom DM, a Provenciano. <laughs> I came to Manila when I was kind of young, pretty young. I was like 16, I think. Yeah, you, uh, it seems to me like you've lived a very interesting, colorful life. I definitely had tons of experiences and, and the fact that I basically lived in, in several places and met all sorts of people along the way. Then to some extent, I've lived um, a colorful life. <laughs> mm-hmm. And could you tell me, Christopher, so Chris, why did you choose the U.S. of all the countries you could have gone to to pursue your education and to eventually work in? Why the U.S.? It's really the fact that the United States still has the best universities in the world. So when I was working at the Central Bank, I used to meet um, economists from the United Nations, from the International Monetary Fund, and most, if not all of them, are um, actually studied here in the United States. And you could just see sort of the difference uh, talking to them versus talking to somebody who doesn't have a PhD. And then you realize that you don't know a lot of things. So I was like, I gotta be there. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I wanna be like that too. Because, <laughs> you know, it's frustrating when they speak about certain things. It's like, oh, I'm not sure what they mean, you know? You know, it, and it's achievable. You can do it. So I was, I was like, you know what? I, I'm gonna get my PhD as well in the US. It's great because I have, uh, I have actually two friends all at the Philippine Central Bank and they um, studied here in the US, also at the University of Illinois. So I had people at the time who, you know, were giving me advice on what to do. And so basically the US is sort of a no-brainer. For me, it's just a question of where you're going to do it because getting into a PhD program here is, is, is very difficult. Oh, is it? Yeah, I, I would suppose so. Yes, yes. Getting into a master's program probably is not because most of the master's programs here uh, don't give you funding, meaning that you have to pay for your own, you know, you got to pay for your own tuition and, and cost of living and stuff. But for PhD, they basically, it's sort of a work because they pay you to, to study. So you got a, you get a tuition waiver and you get a monthly sort of salary. But in exchange, you, you got to do TA work, teaching assistantship work, or got to be a research assistant for a professor. So, and there are just tons of demand. You know, a lot of students from, you know, East Asia, 
students from India, students from Europe and Latin America, they basically compete against the local students here to get into very limited slots in the in the different grad programs. Mm-hmm. And to be able to study in the U.S. for a PhD, you had to have an F1 visa, which is the student visa in the U.S. Is that right? Correct. Well, F1 is, is sort of the generic visa for anybody who wants to study here. Okay. And as well as an undergraduate degree, is that an F1 too? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a sort of an all-encompassing category for students. Great. Okay. So to be able to apply for that F1 visa, what documents would you need to get or secure? Well, so it really depends on the school, but there's certain sort of basic stuff. So for grad programs, the first requirement is what we call the GRE, so the graduate record exam. So think of that as an entrance exam, but it's, but it's standardized. It's like SAT. So anybody in the world has to take that, including the, the local students here. Even Americans have to take it. It is standardized. So it's able to test really your, your, your capability, uh, your quantitative as well as your qualitative skills. Your score has to be high enough to get into the different programs. And as you can see, just like any test score, different universities have different standards. So for places like, for instance, Harvard or MIT, they want almost perfect scores. <laughs> and as you go down the rank of universities, then they get a little bit more loose. But still, it's a very competitive thing. So basically, your goal is to score as high as possible. You're competing with students from, say, China or, or South Korea who spend at least a year preparing for the test. Mm. And I remember I was working in the Philippine Central Bank, so I spent like two months preparing for the test. And I took the GRE at Ateneo uh, Law School in, in Rockwell. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I ha- took my GRE. So that's the first one. For business degrees, they would have sort of a different but very similar test. It's called GMAT. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you're in the medical field, uh, they have their own sort of exam too, which is a bit different. <laughs> okay. And that also applies to master's degrees. Is that right? So master's degrees are a bit different because I think some master's degrees would require it, some don't. Because master's degree, uh, they're basically just a little bit difficult than undergrad. And, um, well, to be honest, for some schools, it's their money-making program <laughs> because <laughs> students pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and master's students essentially pay for a salary as well. So, so they want to get as many, many people as they can. So some programs would not have very strict rules about master's admissions. Mm, I see. Okay, that's interesting to know. And apart from um, the GRE, what other things would you need to be able to apply for a school there? Yeah, so the GRE is number one. Number two um, is the English test. So in the U.S., we use TOEFL. TOEFL. For some universities here, they would also accept IELTS, but it's really more of TOEFL that's the main requirement. So those are the two tests that you got to have high scores on. And then specifically for the grad school program, there are um, university-specific requirements. Number one, they want a, a personal statement. So they want to know why you want to get the PhD. What's your background? What do you intend to study? What do you, do you intend to do with your PhD? So they want to know you more with your personal statement. You need uh, recommendation letters. And the number really depends on the university. I usually send out like three, sometimes five recommendation letters, preferably from former university professors, Mm -hmm. because really they want to know whether or not you're prepared to get into the PhD program, if you can actually survive it. And of course, the, your, your grade, your previous grade. So they need your transcript of records. They would prefer it to be in English. So if there are courses that, you know, are not in English, at least the, the course title, it has to be translated. They would also need the course equivalent because different universities have their own grading system. They also want to have a sort of a translation of the course description, like what exactly are the courses that you took. I think in terms of like academic requirements, those are pretty much the things that you need to prepare. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's the GRE that matters. No matter how good your recommendations are or your personal statement, the GRE will tell them exactly how if you're 
capable of getting the PhD. Mm-hmm. Those are requirements for admission into the PhD program. Yeah. And getting F1 visa is a totally different thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Sabi nga, ano, to get that F1 visa, you need that institution certification, which is a confirmation maybe that you yeah. are enrolled into the program. Yeah. So basically what happens is that, so you send those out, right? And then they give you uh, your admission results, you know, just like OCAT results sometime from January to March. It really depends on the school. Okay. Basically, they will give you what the, what we call I-20. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's a document that says that you are admitted to a specific program, and then um, that will trigger the process of getting the F-1 visa, basically. Yeah. So once you get that F-1, you will need to prepare a few things. The first, I guess, will be this USCIS form, which is pretty standard when you apply for any visa. So when you apply for a tourist visa, you also fill this out. So basically, the, the document asks for all your, basically, your personal history, your information, um, your family, your background, your income. Actually, more than anything, you need to have funds in order to finance yourself so you need they need to know that you are financially capable of maintaining yourself here yeah and how much is deemed enough it really depends on on the university because some universities are more expensive and some locations are more expensive so they expect you to have more in my case i remember i just need to have um something like at the minimum $20,000 Twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, so just get a sort of a proof if you apply for a visa. You know that show money kind of thing. Yeah, um, it's kind of like that. (laughs) Yeah. So, does this uh, sufficient funding include your enrollment fees as well as your uh, day to day fees for living? It's sort of a catch all. It doesn't really include tuition because you don't have to pay tuition fees here. But at least in my university, you have to pay miscellaneous fees. So that means that every semester I still have to pay something like a thousand dollars miscellaneous expense. So I have to budget for that <laughs> in addition to my regular expenses. Yeah. So you don't have to pay tuition, but probably people in masters or undergraduates would have to include that fee. Typically, they do, uh, unless they're very lucky that they get scholarships or funding. But typically, uh, masters and undergrad students uh, from abroad basically pay for their own education. Yeah, and I guess that funding would also include like rental fees, maybe if you are going to rent. Yeah, so they have like a, a sort of a cost of living estimate. So they would tell you that every month you should have this certain amount of money in order to uh, live here. And the university you choose decides how much exactly you would need. Yeah, it really depends on the location. So you could just imagine if you're if you're sitting in New York or Boston or in California, it might be a bit more expensive just because those places are just a bit more expensive. Rents are more expensive. Essentially, the rent, I think the rent is the main major expense if you're a student. Yeah. Going back to the requirements, aside from that confirmation that you are enrolled and your TOEFL or your English language proficiency exam and your sufficient funding, you would also need your uh, basic valid passport and proof of your residency in your home country? I'm not sure about the proof of your residency, but I guess the passport will be enough, right? Because that's where they'll put the visa. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, those are like sort of standard, right? When you're traveling, you're going to have your passport. I think I prepared my birth certificate as well. The, the That I-20, that document from the school. I also brought basically all the legal or not the legal, the the original copies of the things I sent them, like transcript of records, just because you don't know what they'll ask. So you bring all those school documents, even I think my family's assets, Mm -hmm. because you don't know what they'll ask. So like I brought titles of properties and things like that. Oh yeah, because even though you already have that school that you enrolled in, you will still have to go to the U.S. Embassy for an interview. Correct. So just like, you know, getting a tourist visa, you do things online, you fill out that USCIS form, and then you get a schedule. And then you go to the US Embassy for interview. 
it's which is pretty standard really it's, it's really just they just want to know you know where you're going what you what you're gonna study things like that i remember it was um it was pretty short for me actually so if people want to start applying to be a student there so you they just have to go to the website of uscis which is u.s citizenship and immigration services so if you want to study here you go to different education websites, like you could Google getting to grad school program in the U.S. Because you got to know where which school you're going to apply to. Mm-hmm. Because you, before you could even go to the immigration aspect of it, you got to be admitted. And that's a major hurdle in, on its own. Mm-hmm. How hard was it for you, Chris, to be able to get into a school in the U.S.? How hard? That's a difficult question <laughs> because I don't know the alternative, right? But what I can say is that I really prepared for the exams. I studied for two months for GRE. TOEFL was easy. I was like just one weekend or two weekends. I was just because it's just English, basically. It's just um, grammar, sentence completion, logic, and things like that. And there's also speaking part of it. So if you can just Google TOEFL, has I think four parts: reading writing there's also speaking part and what did i forget listening yeah yeah mm-hmm. but um so really more of that okay and then once you get that done uh and when you feel like your scores are high enough the question is how to strengthen your portfolio your you know your application packet because you're basically you're gonna compete with as i've said mentioned with the rest of the world the thing with phd in economics programs is that they expect you to be really good in math really yeah and i'm not <laughs> <laughs> so i guess that's the the kind of one of the hard aspects of it because even before applying to schools i had to take um advanced upper level math courses and since i was working at the philippine central bank the closest was de la salle university taf mm-hmm. so i had to take advanced linear algebra real analysis, topology, things like that, <laughs> because they that will strengthen your profile. So that would signal to the admissions committee that you're serious, that you've taken these essentially math preparatory courses so that you'll do well when you actually get in. So that is, um, I think, kind of the harder part, because it's not just submitting the requirements, it's literally preparing yourself to this five years of torture. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I suppose that the requirements to get that student visa would be the same today, except for the vaccine. They would probably ask you if you have been vaccinated. Yeah. Well, before they require you, so it's a requirement, but you don't have to get the vaccines. Um, so there's sort of a battery of vaccines, which I'm sure you probably, you know, got in them as well when you went there in New Zealand, like MMR. Uh, what is that? T Tetanus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So th- those kinds, actually, I remember because my mom doesn't remember every single vaccine that I got. So what ended up happening is when I got to Chicago, they had to repeat. So they have to give me basically all of those requirements because they just want to make sure that you got it. It's something that you can do when you get here. So, but I'm not sure, but I'm guessing right now the vac- COVID vaccine is, is, is already a requirement as well. And only because I think universities have some universities have started to require it to their own students like in my university we require students to get vaccinated by the end of september otherwise they will get kicked out some universities have not so i know west michigan university in kalamazoo has not required the covid vaccine and chris how far ahead would you have to prepare to be able to um go to university because there is a timeline in between where you have to apply and you have to go to immigration for your interview and you have to wait for their um, um, approval. So how long a time would you have to give yourself? Well, okay. So I think the major sort of the start that you have to think about is the sort of December, January deadline. So that's the deadline for sending your application. Mm. The start of the year and you get uh, your uh, offers, uh, your admission offers starting actually sometime January to March to May. And then you choose if you have several offers. And I, and I remember I had um, a couple of offers then and I had to choose which one 
to go to. I think I got mine sometime in maybe March or April. Once you get that confirmation that, that you've confirmed to the university that I'm actually going to your university, then the next steps, they will send you the I-20 and then you'll start the immigration process. Mm-hmm. So that's starting, uh, that's in between April to May or June. And then you fly in, you fly to the U.S. sometime in August because we start school here in August. Ah, so you have to prepare far ahead, like hindi pwedeng two months before school starts. No, no, because the December deadline is the December for application. It's the deadline for application. Preparing that application requires time, as you can imagine. Uh, preparing for the GRE, getting your TOEFL scores, getting your letters from your professors, and maybe getting enrolling in, in upper-level math courses. That takes time. That's You can't do that in the same year, basically. Yeah, yeah. So a year in advance talaga to be safe. It depends on the person, obviously, because for some people, they don't need to take math courses. GRE probably is not that bad. So in theory, you could take your GRE and TOEFL sometime, maybe October at the latest or November, and you should be able to send your application in December. If you're smart enough to do those things. <laughs> if you're smart enough. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. And Chris, for anybody who wants to study in the U.S., what advice could you give them? Well, I, I guess you have to ask yourself why you're studying here. <laughs> why you're studying what you want to study. So so some people rather just study master's. Uh, some rich kids out there would want to get their bachelor's degree here. <laughs> and some crazy kid like myself would want to get their Ph.D. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, spend their five years here. Um, I think especially for PhDs, it's a commitment. You've gone through all that process, that difficult task. You want to make sure that when you get in here, when you fly in here, that you finish it. A lot of people don't. That's the problem. Either because they don't pass the comprehensive exams at the end of the first or second year, or they just feel like PhD is so difficult they can't do it. Or they, at some point, they realize that, you know, it's not a life for them. But it's a huge investment. So if you don't have uh, rich parents to back you up the entire process, you really got to prepare it for it mentally, emotionally, uh, I think especially financially. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And matanong ko lang, are there any affordable universities there at all? Because for me, it seems to me like the U.S. is just full of really expensive universities. Is there anything like for the Filipino budget? <laughs> well, the, the thing is the Filipino budget is, is huge variation. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what the Filipino budget is because I know there are a lot of extremely wealthy people in the Philippines. But one thing is for sure, you have to have some, a certain level of financial capability to come here. And I think that's the major constraint for a lot of people because um, if say if you're working there and if you're not earning enough then you won't be able to pay for GRE. GRE itself something like 200 plus dollars the same with TOEFL. So those that's how much is that? That's already $400 or 20000 plus every university that you send your application to there's an application fee. Yeah. You're going to pay for that as well. So even the application process is expensive. Mm-hmm. So if you're not capable of financing that part, and that's the major requirement, it's like the door. <laughs> if you can't even open the door, then then you can't do it. <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. And yeah, I mean, you've you've you know you've studied in New Zealand, so you 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 know what I'm saying. It's it's not a cheap process. Oh, it's not at all. But are there any scholarships there that are available to Filipinos? I suppose there are a lot. I'm not sure about specific to Filipinos. So I know in the past, in the 60s and 70s, um, during that time uh, when we when the Americans just left the Philippines, they opened up a lot of scholarships specifically to Filipinos. And I know a lot of professors at the, at the University of the Philippines, they study here through that. They were able to get into like really good schools because of those funding. But because we had strong ties with the U.S. then. But now it's so much different. There's so many Filipinos here. 
And so the focus has now been shifted to, I would say, a little bit more, I wouldn't say marginalized, but less represented countries. Mm -hmm. But there are tons of scholarships that are available out there. There are university scholarships that you can apply to. Not all universities are expensive. You could imagine the top schools are super expensive. Uh, the University of Chicago, if I remember it right, is about 60000 or fifty to 60000 a semester, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. At my university, the University of Illinois in Chicago, uh, if my tuition fee is something like, I think, $20,000 a semester. Hi, I'm RJ Ledesma. Get inside the heads of the country's sharpest and most innovative business personalities and entrepreneurs. Hack your way to success as you learn more about how they think about business. What are their best practices and success secrets? How do they innovate their businesses during the pandemic? And what opportunities do they see in the new normal? Join me on the RG Ledesma podcast. Mm -hmm. So that's like a million pesos is what I meant. Uh, that's waived. So if you don't have scholarship, then you have to be ready to pay for that. But if you just want to get into a bachelor's program, things could be a bit cheaper. So there are two kinds of fees here, actually, in-state and out-of-state. So in-state, meaning you you actually live within the state where you're studying. I remember you could pay as little as, I think, ten to $15,000 at my university. Uh, but if you're, you know, out of state, if you're an international student, you're going to pay at least $5,000 more. Mm. Uh, that's at, in Chicago, my university here in Grand Valley, because we get a lot of funding from the government and from donors as well, we are able to bring down the cost of a semester of tuition to something like under $10,000. Okay. So there's a huge variation in the cost. So there are relatively cheaper universities that are extremely expensive universities. Private ex universities like Yale or Stanford or Harvard are notoriously expensive, for sure. Yeah, so I you will just have to do your own research if you're really bent on studying the, in the U.S. Yes, yes, you got to do a lot of research. And, and it really depends on the university, so you can't say something generalizable. <laughs> yeah, Chris, I think we're going to talk about just the student visas for this episode, but I might contact you again in the future para sa H1B. Oh, sure. Yeah. So let's move on to the culture there. Yes. Yeah, so what were your first impressions when you got there? I think one thing that's a bit different, I think that's the first impression that I got is that people are more like outgoing. People are more expressive of themselves. They're more confident. Mm-hmm to speak their mind and they um it doesn't matter if you're a student or a restaurant staff or employee whatever they love to chat and they're confident to to talk to you contrast that with i think a typical philippine culture because we tend to be what's the term uh, mahiyain no mm, mahiyain yeah uh especially i i noticed this if you're a staff in in a restaurant or in a fast food place they tend to be very sweet and, and, and shy. Not as, I would say, confident. Not as outgoing. Not outgoing. What's the term? Not as out there. Mm -hmm. But people here, are, people here are out there. And Americans are known to be like that because compared to the rest of the world, Americans tend to be a little bit more loud, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, my friends from Europe told me that, you know, just to spot an American in Europe, you just have to see who's the loudest talker. And it's the American. Yeah, yeah. I... Um, I've actually, I think, gotten that sort of aspect of them. So, but th so that's that's one one thing I noticed. But in terms of like other aspects, my experience is a bit different because I got into a PhD program in Chicago. So that means that my program has tons of international students. So I have friends from literally all corners of the world. At the same time, I studied in Chicago, which is uh, one of the top three, top four, very diverse cities here. It's a major city, which means that there are all sorts of people here as well. So the culture in my department, in the university, in the city, is, is very international. Not, you're not literally just dealing with the American culture. You're dealing with 
the cultures of people from all over the world. Yeah. Outside the university, though, like in general, the American culture, for instance, when I deal with my students, I would say that the culture is a bit different because people here are more assertive. It's kind of similar to what I said before, but that's great because, you know, uh, they're willing to chat. They're willing to talk about things. But at the same time, it can be bad if there are some conflicts mm. because they will assert themselves. But in terms of like food and stuff, I would say a bit different, but not really. So because in the Philippines, my lifestyle is, I wouldn't say international, but I was very open to, you know, all sorts of cuisines. And uh, at least in the central bank, I get to talk to, you know, all sorts of people in the Philippines and abroad. It's the culture here, food wise, all sorts of cuisine are available. So, which is great. But at the end of the day, you have their basic food is the American food, you know, pizzas, burgers, fries, mm -hmm. steak. Some of it I like more when I came here. For instance, I love steaks now. I love salad uh, here more than when I was in the Philippines. But that means that I don't have the same kind of access to Filipino cuisine, especially here in Michigan, because actually there's no Filipino restaurant here in my city. I have to go to Detroit to go to a couple. I have to contend myself with, you know, Vietnamese food or Chinese food or Korean food because they're kind of close yeah. to our food. So yeah, you just have to realize that, you know, your life is going to be more diverse now. It's more international. So if you're somebody who only eats Filipino food, then that would be a problem. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> other than that, I, I, I don't see any large sort of cultural difference because I guess in the Philippines, a lot of people are already very Americanized to begin with. And I think I'm one of those. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go to BGC and people live who live there, the kind of life that they have is it's kind of similar to what we have here. Yeah. And let's go to the academe. How different is the education system there from your observation compared to what you had experienced back home? The thing is, so I studied at the University of the Philippines in Diliman. And at least at the School of Economics, most of our professors study here in the U.S. So the kind of education that we got there, at least I got the School of Economics, is pretty much the same kind of education that I give my students here. Mm. The only difference, and I think it's, it has nothing to do with the with the school, but the culture in the Philippines, at least in in UP, there's not much hand holding. So basically, the teacher will just say, "All right, our exam is next week. Covers your chapters one to five, and you'll probably ask what types of questions, and then he answer." But it stops there. You study. You go back home. You study here. At least for the undergrad. It's a bit different because we provide uh, sample exams. We provide study notes. And we conduct review sessions basically to make sure that they're prepared for the exam. So I'm not sure if that's also true in the Philippines now. I don't know that. But I feel like that's a generational thing and a little bit more cultural. That, this with respect to undergrad. With respect to grad school, though, it's pretty much like my UP experience. They teach and they give you problem sets and they tell you what the coverage is for the exam and you're pretty much on your own. Hmm. That's why it, it's hard. Yeah, that's an interesting note about the undergrad. It's really a lot of hand-holding. Hand-holding is sort of the key. It doesn't matter whether you're teaching in a top school. Um, I heard uh, students at, at top school are, are also clamoring for that. So I think it's more of a generational thing that people are, the students have become more needy. <laughs> they they basically can't function on their own. They're not as independent as the previous generation. Oh, wow. I never, I never really thought of that. That's the first time I've heard of this type of um, talagang dependence on their teachers. Yeah. And the problem is that when, when students don't do well, it's never their fault. Uh. <laughs> it's just that, um, you know, the teachers are not teaching well. But I thought they were assertive. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're assertive that it's never their fault. <laughs> okay. So, but, but that is for undergrad. For grad school, it's a bit different. And actually, it's totally different mm -hmm. because you have a very sort of international class, like only about 50% of students are Americans. 
and super competitive that it's just different. There's not much handholding. Yeah. And since you graduated from the from your PhD, you've begun working as a professor, assistant professor. So how about the work culture? How different is working is the working environment there compared to the Philippines? Well, it's very hard to compare because I'm working in the academia here. In the Philippines, I work in the private sector at Nielsen, also in the government. So that means I'm working with a team. I'm under a team. Bosses there, basically, only few have their own rooms. It's sort of an open space kind of environment. Mm. So there's more collaboration there. I spend definitely more time in the office because, you know, you go in like eight or nine and at least in Nielsen, sometimes we would leave like early morning. At the central bank, it would depend, but sometimes we would leave like seven or eight. Mm. Sometimes you could leave early. But you're working with a team. So a report is an output of several people. So there's always somebody like either following up with you or you need something from another person. So there's a lot of collaboration. In the academia, it's different. Professors here are pretty much um, sort of independent. They work on their own. Even in Chicago, where I studied, the professors are just in their offices doing their teaching preparation, but most of the time doing their own research. That's the same kind of culture that I have here. Like I'm in my office most of the time doing my own thing. That's not necessarily a U.S. thing because I'm pretty sure the University of the Philippines professors are also like that. It's a, it's a field kind of thing where you're working. Mm-hmm. I know, though, that in terms of the private sector, there's also a lot of collaboration here. So I think in terms of work culture, it's pretty similar. But one thing is for sure, they expect you to to be kind of workaholic here. I think that's the sense I'm getting. I know Americans are some of the most, I wouldn't say hardworking, but <laughs> they spend a lot of time in the office. Mm-hmm. But not as bad as other countries like China, for instance, where they... They do have this 996 kind of culture. It's like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Six days a week. Yeah. Yeah. In academia, the problem is that you essentially work the whole time. It doesn't matter whether you're home or in the office. You're doing your own research. You're thinking about your research, even if you're not typing. And I think that's working. And I heard in the States, there's this very individualistic spirit when it comes to one's ambition. If you want to get somewhere, you have to rely on yourself. And you can't ask for help from other people. Is that true? No, you can. I, I think that's a, that's a misconception. There's just a focus on getting things done by your own. Like, if you want to get ahead, you're going to work your ass. That sort of independence is not only present in work culture, but in families as well. This is a problem for a lot of like middle income to low income families, not necessarily wealthy families. Some kids have to basically finance themselves to get to go to school. Yeah. Because their parents won't finance their education. Especially true if you're low income or middle income. For wealthy families that's not necessarily true. A lot of kids they don't have student loans because their wealthy parents or wealthy grandparents paid for their school. So that's the independence part. In terms of just focus on individual freedom. So here in the US, there's that individualistic kind of thing that it's my body, my choice, that kind of situation that's kind of different i guess from say asia because we tend to well we have that right we 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 tend to be individuals but we also tend to think about others a lot about our family for instance we know that you know if the going gets tough we're gonna get support from our family or in terms of vaccination you we consider our you know the negative impact of not getting vaccinated on the family on other people because we have that kind of perspective. But here it's really more of like, I do what I think is good for me, Mm. which is totally different. Uh Obviously, a lot of people also recognize the problem with not getting vaccinated. But there's that, you know, huge swath of the population having this thinking that you do your thing, but I do my own thing and don't meddle with me. Mm. So it's really... Very individualistic, so there's no like consideration for the group, or at least less than what we in our culture. There's definitely, you know, people recognize, for instance, like gun laws, which is a very controversial issue here. You know, people want to have their guns, right? It doesn't matter, like, if I 
accidentally kill someone, but I, I need that God in my home. <laughs> and others would say, wait, what if we limit that because we want to, I don't know, maybe limit the probability that you're going to kill somebody in the future. <laughs> uh, some people would recognize that's a solution, but some people would say, I don't care. I got to defend myself. It's my constitutional right to own my own God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is a sensitive topic, Chris, but recently there have been some attacks or discrimination against Asians because of the coronavirus. Have you experienced this yourself? No, no, not really. Actually, not at all. <laughs> and is the environment as hostile as we are made to believe? I'm, I'm in academia. So who I work with and who I deal with are a little different from like the average person in the street. You see a lot of discrimination actually in the street or in the train station. So basically I drive here all the time. So I'm not exposed to that. So when I say that I don't experience that, and I think the reason is that I am sort of in this sort of little capsule or I'm kind of sheltered from it because of my work and where I work, my lifestyle. It's not exposed to that kind of discrimination. And I think, and this is, I'm not sure about this, a lot of these um, discriminating people, they target uh, maybe like older people. Ah, okay. People who think that they can't defend themselves. So you've seen this kind of old guy in New York who was, I think his face was cut by a knife or something. And you have this Chinese lady in California who was attacked. She was old, so it's kind of frail. And there's also that language when they realize that you can't speak English well. They feel like they're more emboldened, that they, they're they more confident to attack you because you, they know that you can't defend yourself. Mm. So there's that. And I think there's also an income factor there when they know that you're maybe poor, low income, that they could just attack you. But if you're not old, if you're not poor, if you look strong, they would hesitate to mm -hmm. do that. Is the environment yeah. changing now or is the level of this discrimination still the same from last year? Well, I think it's gone down. There was just some instances, but it, I think people now realize that the problem with COVID is not people just not doing the right thing. Mm. And it doesn't matter what your race is or where you came from. That's where there's a problem. You don't want to get, people don't want to get vaccinated. People are not wearing masks. People are being careless in whatever they're doing. And they're getting people exposed to the virus and therefore people are getting sick. Mm -hmm. So no, I think there's this realization that it's no longer a, a foreign thing. What's causing, what's causing this pandemic to, to be extended, to continue is basically our own fault. Yeah. And could you tell me about the standard of living there? How different is it from back home? Well, just like in the Philippines, if you're, when you earn well, the Philippines are going to be okay. Same thing here. If you earn well, you're going to be fine. I think I just want to, because as an economist and I teach this in my class, the only difference I think is uh, when it comes to access to resources, if you're poor. So here, if you're unemployed, if you're not earning enough, you get some support from the government. So there's unemployment benefits, there are welfare programs, there's food stamps, things like that. We don't have that in the Philippines. So if you're poor in the Philippines, you could literally die of hunger mm -hmm. because there's no government support. Not here. Mm -hmm. And if you get sick, are you paid for by the government? No. So well, it depends on your job. So I can only speak about my job because um, I'm a salaried employee. I just have to do my job. I don't have to clock in. And if I get sick, I have my health insurance. So no, the government doesn't pay you. Mm, at all for any condition. Talagang sa HMO. Right. Unless you're talking about disability. So when you become disabled here, meaning you can no longer work, then you could apply for disability benefits which basically means that you get paid a certain amount of money, not very high every month, because the idea is that you can no longer work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but to ask you, you know, after all of this, I just need to ask you, Chris, do you think the grass is greener there in the U.S.? 
I think it's kind of relative because on what what your what definition of greener is, the common notion of greener is that is your income higher. True, my income here compared to what I could be earning back home is 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 much higher. Are you, am I happier here? Do I have more friends here? Is my、uh, lifestyle any better than compared to the Philippines? That's kind of questionable.、Mm-hmm. But maybe just because of the kind of lifestyle that I have in the Philippines, I have tons of friends, which means that I could easily call somebody if I want to grab dinner or if we want to attend a party or whatever. That's not necessarily true here because, as you said, people tend to be more independent,、uh, and、uh, you can't just like you know have a plan. Like there, it has to be planned. Like. We will have a party, and you gotta announce it in advance, send invitation in advance. <laughs> okay.、Um, because the people are so busy, people are, are at least the people I work with, they're so hardworking that it's just not easy to just do something.、Hmm. Dating is also kind of hard here because of the culture in the Philippines. It's you you, you kind of know the person, like you kind of know what to expect, you know. But here it's not because you're dealing with people from all over the world, right? And I think for some reason I see higher instances of mental anxiety, of mental health issues with people here. That sometimes it's kind of scary to date, to date,、oh. because you know the person is probably fine until you realize there's something wrong. Okay. And there's just higher incidence of mental health problems here in the U.S. I think compared to other countries. Like I know, for instance, in the Philippines, if somebody's having mental issue, I'm pretty sure other people have legitimate mental issues. But you know, our common idea is that you know, just just have fun, or you know, don't take it seriously.、Mm. But here, the mental issues is, is a real problem. A lot of people don't have support. I I know students who literally break down because of the difficulty of courses, and I was like. I don't know. Back in the Philippines, I'm dying. Actually, even in grad school, I'm dying. But you just gotta push through it and and do your thing and and hope for the best. You don't break down because what's gonna happen if you break down? Yeah, and you had that social support because people are more group thinking back home. Yeah, not just social, more importantly, family support,、mm-hmm. friends, family. Here, that's sort of a luxury. Not pay, not many people don't have that.、Mm. So it seems like yeah, US is a good place. If you want to save up, or if you want to earn more, but for other aspects of life, it's a bit contentious. It really depends on where you work or your life. Where you work, what 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 kind of person you are, if or if you if you're a lucky person that you met somebody who is you're compatible with, it could build a family with that person, and you know you could, could, could pursue your career at the same time. So it's just like in the Philippines, though it's just a little bit different. I think it's just a little bit more difficult here.、Mm-hmm. Well, wow. Thank you so much, Chris, for all of that information that you gave us. It's so insightful. And、oh, <laughs> for people who want to know more about you, is there any website or any channel that they could、uh, check out?、Um, I guess you could. I could just give my my LinkedIn account. Yeah, you could just look for Christopher John Cruz at LinkedIn. For everyone who wants to check it out, it's just in the show notes. And yeah, any parting words? My only advice is, you know what? Go for your dream, go for your goals. It's never too late to try. I was not very young when I started grad school, and to be honest, life in the Philippines is getting better, but it's still pretty hard. I think if you're a professional in the Philippines, you could find a job, you could find a high-paying job, and moving might not be an option. Or it may not be necessary, but for a lot of people, getting work somewhere, whether in the U.S. or Europe or somewhere in Asia, Australia, New Zealand, China, just do your research. At the end of the day, it is up to you to push yourself to do whatever you want to do, so that when you grow old, you won't have regrets. <laughs>、mm-hmm. As an economist, Chris, do you think it, the situation really is improving back home, and give our listeners some hope in the Philippines? Yeah. Well, it's very hard to say because the economy is literally tied to the pandemic,、mm-hmm. and because the pandemic is very uncertain, which means the the economy is also uncertain. What I'm gonna say though is that、uh, if you have a job in the Philippines, don't quit. <laughs> don't quit just yet. <laughs>、mm-hmm. 
because most likely most of your you know listeners you know already have decent jobs in the Philippines anyway. For those who are you know in difficult situation, I would say that Western countries are starting to open up. Canada, U.S. We literally need people <laughs> because we can't hire people. If you're in healthcare industry, we need people. <laughs> If you want to work temporarily, there are a lot of jobs, those kinds of jobs in the U.S. I know it's very easy to move to Canada right now because they did not meet the quota last year because not many people migrated, and so it's kind of easier to migrate there. So yeah, just just work hard. <laughs> mm -hmm. You can't get things for free in the world. You know, you see people who are who have maybe good lifestyle or earning a lot of money. For the most part, they work hard to get there, unless you're a Kardashian or an influencer <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Money's not easy. Getting somewhere is not easy. Achieving your ambition is not easy. You gotta work hard, and don't be envious of these people. They they work their asses while you are sleeping. They're not. While you are drinking your coffee or partying, they're probably studying. They're working hard. You don't know that. You only see the final outcome. That's correct. You just gotta you know do your own share of work. Mm hmm. How inspiring! Thank you so much. Chris. I don't know if it's inspiring, but I'm just saying my story <laughs> and very uh, realistic. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's it's nice to chat about about this because, to be honest with you, I it gave me time to reflect about my past seven years here in the U.S. Of course, it's a pleasure. And for anybody who wants to study in the USA, we've got a few links in the show notes for you guys to check out. And if you like the show, do reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or an email. Or you could buy us a coffee. Thank you for listening, and see you in the next two weeks. I'm Kring Lakson with Christopher Cruz, and this is the Greener Side. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.